This is where we meet, sharing conversations from New Mexico and beyond. I'm Chelsea Reedy, and this show is supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Taos Center for the Arts would like to recognize that it operates on the homelands of the Red Willow people of Taos Pueblo. We'd like to honor the importance of Native and Indigenous cultures within our community and within the land we live, learn, and exist on. In the first episode of this two-part series, we hear from David Fernandez and Dr. Hope Kitts on the counter-educational methods created by La Academia de la Nueva Raza and Paulo Freire. La Academia de la Nueva Raza was a land-based organization founded by Tomás Atencio and Facundo Valdez in El Puerto del Embudo de Nuestro Señor San Antonio, known to most of us today as Dixon, New Mexico. From 1969 to 1978, La Academia set out to establish the development of a body of knowledge derived from the Chicano experience in northern New Mexico. La Academia was dedicated to the preservation of cultural traditions through community activism and the collection of local oral histories. This unique lens to social analysis and social change set out to identify the challenges within a community and aim to solve those challenges with the knowledge of that community. The need for an educational process that did not mirror the desires and demands of the dominant political, economic, and social structures of the United States was a large part of the purpose of La Academia. Founder Tomas Atencio wrote in La Academia's quarterly publication, La Cuaderno, that, quote, the creation of a climate in which a counter-community of human beings can evolve is La Academia's ultimate goal, end quote. Born in 1921 in Recife, Brazil, Paulo Freire developed a unique approach to education. Freire understood and recognized that people bring their own knowledge and experience to academic settings, and these should be included within learning. In 1972, Freire was invited to New Mexico by La Academia, and several of his ideas were adopted by the group. Now, we'll hear from David Fernandez, a writer, speaker, and board officer with the Northern Rio Grande National Heritage Area, about what was occurring during the founding of La Academia in the late 1960s and early 1970s, and more about his colleagues and friends. Well, yeah, there was a lot going on. It was, um, of course, here in, in Taos itself, uh, is when um, the first uh, waves or influxes of um, uh, the so-called hippie uh, people started uh, to wash in here. And uh, so that um, kind of started setting everybody for a loop uh, around here. And uh, then at the same time, there were, from the Hispanic side of things, uh, there were... Um, the, you know, the, the Cesar Chavez uh, boycotts and all in California and, um, and uh, uh, a lot of um, activity going on around um, activism, um, you know, Hispanic or Chicano activism, for example. And, um, and it really started to, to hit close here to, to home. Um, and... Um, on top of that, or along with that, was um, uh, what was happening with the, uh, the Native Amer- Native American peoples too. Uh, 
more elsewhere, of course, you know, the the wounded knee area and all that. But uh, there were people here from from Taos who some of them uh, actually even kind of went out that way and, and, and joined in the, uh, the affray over there. Um, I think the, uh, the the base people from here, the kind of more settled community, uh, first began to raise eyebrows about what was happening, and then um, uh, some of the people who became actively involved in uh, some of these movements um, began to trouble some of the, the people in, in in authority or power here too, and. People were wondering what's going to happen next uh, around here. For example, with the um, the um, the, his, the Hispanic part side, yeah, there was the uh, Cesar Chavez's the Great Boycott and and such and uh, other uh, activity like that. And um, I know while jumping ahead a little bit to like 1973, when actually a lot of this was in full swing. Um, in 1972, I had started to, uh, I had started my writing relationship with the local paper, you know, the Taos News, because um, I'd gone in there and I said, well, you know, it's a great paper and everything, but uh, can we also seek to have a little bit more balance in here? Um, you know, maybe put a little bit more light on uh, on, on the uh, the elder peoples from here and such. And so they say, well, okay, let's give it a shot. So I started writing uh, columns and articles since back then. And um, by now, 50 years later, it really hasn't changed much at all, I'll have to say. But back then when I was doing that, um, somebody said, well, you know, the, the Brown Berets of California, um, they've uh, undertaken a, a campaign to uh, reconquer all of the Southwest from uh, from the Americans this time around, and uh, calling it La Caravana, La Caravana de la Reconquista, and uh, they're brown berets, and you know they're dressed up in, in in uniforms and all this, and and they're coming to Taos, and um, uh, would you, David, be willing to uh, to put them up because some. By virtue of some of the way my writing was going, people got the impression that I was, they got a certain impression about me and, and, and my, my, what they imagined might be my leanings, that uh, I'd be wide open to, to a revolution and all of this business. So anyway, so <clears throat> a good friend of mine, uh, may he rest in peace, Vicente Martinez, a descendant, descendant of Padre, a self-described uh, descendant of Padre Martinez, who was also somehow connected with some of these groups like uh, Corky Gonzalez out of uh, Denver and some of the Chicano activism. Uh, he said, uh, well, these uh, uh, caravana de Reconquista is coming to Taos and uh, uh, we'd like to invite you to put them up. <laughs> And um, so happened, you know, we had our, our house on Montoya Street, which we still do, which had a, a, yard, a large yard. And um, um, when I got home uh, that afternoon, they were 
kind of trudging in, marching in the, the Brown Berets. I don't know, maybe about, might have been uh, 16 of them or so like that, you know, in their uniforms and, 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 and flags and reconquer and all this and, and tent and uh, they just went right ahead and set up their tent in the, in the large yard there and, and, and started to camp out there. Um, they had a guard uh, around, and in other words, they, they occupied uh, <laughs> and such. Um, and uh, but they were uh, they were actually pretty good people, and uh, I know my my parents got along with them great, and so did all, a lot of the other neighbors uh, in the area. Um, and in fact, after a while, the the whole town got used to them. They they hung around for at least a couple of weeks. The mayor back then. Um, Romaldo Garcia and uh, other people here. At first, you know, some were panicked. And said, oh, these guys are coming in. They're gonna, they're gonna shut down the road on both ends of town, and everybody's gonna be held captive here. And uh, what's gonna happen next, and all that. But uh, it all worked out, <clears throat> and uh, these people were actually helpful. They, on their own, they even undertook some cleanup around town and different things, and, and got to know and sat down with the <clears throat> town council members and had a frank discussion about some of these issues. And uh, it, um, it all ended up working, uh, working well. They got a lot of support. And uh, the key to a lot of that was uh, just dialogue uh, back then. A very interesting context all the way around uh, because while all the other activism was going on um, on the streets and here and there and, you know, the social activism and, and protests and all this, uh, there were some um, pretty, quote-unquote, you know, level-headed thinkers in some of the colleges and universities and schools, like Tommaso Tensio, um, who were also examining and trying to analyze their, in their own way, um, you know, the, the situation of, uh, uh, of, of peoples in uh, the Southwest, including our area, who part of um, what's been called sometimes, you know, the uh, generational trauma that still um, kind of imbues our area here. And um, Mr. Atencio's thinking was that well, you know, it's all very well and good to um, to be forceful and to protest and make your views known and all of this. Um, but he was also looking, thinking he was wanting to look deeper into the whole subject and, you know, how can we from um, from that fertile um, earth, so to speak, of um, generations of people who've been here who um, might accurately be called uh, oppressed or colonized themselves, uh, what, uh, what real or what kind of uh, uh, um, lasting steps or processes could uh, start to develop um, to um, get people out of that mindset, to get people out uh, to feel f freer to feel uh, themselves uh, and um, in that way 
kind of liberate themselves from these invisible uh, and yet very uh, you know, situations uh, that were there. So, yeah, and um, just just through my writings, just as I had been uh, invited to uh, to uh, host uh, the Caravana de la Reconquista, uh, some people from uh, Dr. Atencio's or Tomas Atencio's group uh, um, asked if I'd be interested in uh, uh, just kind of being a part of or sitting in uh, along with um, what was going on with the La Academia. So I started doing that, and uh, uh, so it was there was a lot going on all at the same time. One of the things I think that was going on um, that La Academia was supporting was kind of, and you you, you uh, mentioned this, uh, these community oral history projects uh, where people were sharing memories of, of culture and history just through dialogue. And I wonder what you can recall from any of those meetings or any of those interactions during that time. Um, was it significant for you personally at that time? And if if the answer is is yes, how has that carried through to now? Yeah. Um, Tomas Atencio's uh, work, and, and, and he had really gotten deeply into this as a, you know, sociology or philosophy uh, uh, professor and a PhD and all this. He was doing all his Deep studies on the on the whole thing, and um, I think he started from Dixon or Ambudo, where he was originally from, and um, so a lot of examples were were taken from the uh, just the ordinary daily life of uh, um, the Dixonites or the people who lived there. Um, you know, for example, yes, you know, everybody's um, living this life and um, kind of used to it and. He said, but maybe a lot of times people do not recognize that um, they're they're kind of in a in a rut or, or a funnel too. And ironically or interestingly, uh, the original uh, Spanish name for Dixon is uh, embudo, and embudo uh, you could translate that to uh, the word funnel, <laughs> you know, and that's because. It's it's a, a funneling chan, uh, canyon that channels water, you know, through there, almost like a funnel. And but they call it el embudo, the the funnel. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so, just a good old-fashioned uh, northern New Mexico town back then, and uh, people daily lives, you know. Um, Maybe some of the men or the, or the women are together sometimes. They're just sitting out there on a, on a sunny side of, a, of the, the wall, the La Resolana, mm -hmm. and uh, hanging around there and just talking or telling stories or remembering things and all like that. And uh, so um, a lot of the life there, um, fitting in thematically with Tomas' idea, Tomas's idea of that, well, you know, this is 
again here symbolically even that word funnel or, or embudo um, you try and look at his um, life kind of you know funneling towards uh, certain good times or, or of the day in the, in the sun to um, to just kind of engage or um, exchange uh, with each other stories and problems and things like this and all of that and uh, that was um, a term used that he used and that began to be used in academia was um, you could just call this uh, el oro del barrio you know the like the, the gold of the town you know the gold of the uh, of the settlement uh, because that's uh, very very valuable <coughs> the content uh, you know the, the the nature of the stories and the memories and the life there, as they recalled, even going back many generations, or how they came to be there, or how, what life is like, and all of this, just like that. So, uh, yeah, it uh, then um, La Academia was co-founded by uh, another good friend of uh, Tomas, and uh, later, you know, ours. Facundo Valdez, out of, uh, I think originally out of uh, Las Vegas. I know that for a long while he uh, was an educator, but uh, I think Highlands University and such. But he and Tomas were kind of like the movers of uh, this original idea. And um, then other people became uh, involved, and I just I wrote down a list of them. Most of them have passed away by now, actually. Um, People, of course, Tomas passed away about 10 years ago, maybe. Um, Facundo Valdez, several years ago, passed away. Vicente Martinez is, is gone as well. Um, Esteban Arellano, also from Dixon. Um, a remarkable man, a, a priest, Catholic priest, Father Luis Jaramillo, very much involved, you might say. He was kind of a spiritual... Uh, director or uh, uh, something like that in, in the group, uh, but also just a very, very deep and, and philosophical uh, type person himself, uh, but Father Luis Jaramillo, Catholic priest. And uh, Father Jaramillo had also done uh, a lot of... Uh, Studies and maybe a lot of more contact with uh, like people from South America, like uh, Paulo Freire from uh, Brazil, and uh, um, with his um, pedagogy of the oppressed uh, books and ideas, and how oppressed peoples uh, can uh, actually come to be on a par with their oppressors, but all just through through dialogue. Uh, just the importance of, of, of dialogue. Paulo Freire, who Mr. Fernandez refers to here, is considered the founder of critical pedagogy. Freire's work presents a critique on dominant institutional forms of education. Critical pedagogy refers to questioning relationships of power in education with the goal of realizing and revealing the factors that prevent humanization. Freire's critique of educational systems showed how classrooms are centered around the teacher, where students are perceived as empty vessels to be filled with the information. 
Freire advocated for a student-centric environment where local knowledge was based in dialogue, and through this critical dialogue, a community could mobilize towards liberation. Dr. Hope Kitts teaches in the areas of critical pedagogy, urban education, and social foundations of education. Here's Dr. Kitts on Paulo Freire. Freire was a, an educator, a philosopher, an activist. Uh, he was born in Brazil, and he was, he was born into poverty. Um, and so he really, early in his life, um, really experienced um, poverty and hunger. And um, throughout his life, uh, he held various uh, roles in, in education. Um, I believe he was secretary of education. Um, I should double check that. But he was involved in um, educational administration and programs um, and Gosh, due to the the political upheaval in Brazil at the time in the '60s, uh, he was exiled um, and for 25 years not allowed back home. So he traveled around the world um, speaking and um, sharing his philosophy of education. He is credited as the founder by by many um, and the most influential critical pedagogue. Ross in the Critical Pedagogy Reader talks about um, thinking about critical pedagogy as having a broad circle and really encompassing, you know, various approaches like ethnocentric education, um, multicultural education, Afrocentric education, different approaches. Um, so there's really no one way to do critical pedagogy. But despite that, there is sort of like a um, there's a thread running through it a commonality between all these various approaches, which is the belief that education can work for the humanization of people and the transformation of real material inequality. It's really kind of viewing education as from the bottom up, from the ground up, um, and, and versus, you know, it's totally opposed to top-down kind of thinking. And of course, that, I'm sure we'll get to that, involves all of these um, themes related to power and authority and how we think about other people. Um, but, but yeah, the belief that education is not just about finding a job, is not just about fitting into things the way they are, but really about transforming um, the world, questioning power relations and oppression, and really working yeah, toward changing things for the better in the world. The banking idea of pedagogy is that the teacher will give the students what they need, the students will take it in like a deposit, and Freddy critiques that model because he says that it, it treats people like things rather than like people. Um, it assumes that students are blank slates with no knowledge of their own versus meaning makers, you know. Um, and I have a, a description that um, he, the way that he describes the banking method, um, the teacher teaches and the students are taught. The teacher knows everything and the students know nothing. The teacher thinks and the students are thought about. The teacher talks and the students listen meekly. The teacher disciplines and the students are disciplined. The teacher chooses and enforces their choice and the students comply. The teacher acts and the students have the illusion of acting through the action of the teacher. 
The teacher chooses the program content and the students who are not consulted adapt to it. Two, two more, the teacher confuses the authority of knowledge with his or her own professional authority, which she and he sets in opposition to the freedom of the students. And finally, the teacher is the subject of the learning process while the pupils are mere objects. So I think a lot of times we, as teachers, you know, we, we try to be more progressive by um, giving students the illusion of choice. You know, you can do a poem or a, an essay or, but it's really just that illusion. And um, it's really just an oppressive kind of way of approaching education and encouraging students to comply and really have no voice or agency in the process. So Freire contrasts um, to the banking method, he contrasts the problem posing uh, education, the problem posing method, which I mean, it is like uh, in Education for Critical Consciousness, he talks about it. It's it's an anthropological project. So he would go into villages with a team, with a whole team of people, and they would first, you know, ask the villagers questions. I should add that, you know, he was a literacy teacher um, and he was teaching adult, he called them peasants. Uh, some people have a problem with that term now, but I'll just use that term because that's what he used. But um, he was teaching peasants who couldn't read um, how to read. And whereas other people didn't have success, he could teach them. They would become fully literate in a matter of months. And he did that through this very specific uh, method of phonemic awareness combined with deep study of their environment and before even beginning to teach them. Um, he would he and his team, I should say, would immerse themselves in the community, would study what is meaningful to the people where they were and yeah, what what the culture was of the group he was working with. And only after that very systemic process would he begin to teach literacy using images from their lives and, and meaning from their culture. So it was a very practical approach to teach literacy, but it was also connected to their world and to their environment. But yeah, I mean, one thing that the problem posing, that problem posing pedagogy believes in is that people want to improve their lives and they know they know what the problems are in their communities and they want they alone can fix it in a way um, through education and improving the situation that people are in through literacy through through learning being placed as ex experts in their own right and um the inversion of authority um, is really central to that, that um, he has a, um, a quote, nadie edu educa nadie y nadie educa sola. So no one educates anyone else and no one's educated alone. So teachers become students, students become teachers. You know, he also says no one knows everything, but also no one knows nothing. So everybody has something to offer. And in those culture circles, it was that kind of first understanding about what people find meaningful and really positioning them not as things or objects or blank slates, but as human beings with knowledge and, yeah, I mean, fully connected to their world, not separate from the world. In 
1972, Freire was invited to New Mexico and he gave a presentation at a meeting held by La Academia de la Nueva Raza in Abiquiu. We'll hear more on how Freire's ideas were adopted by La Academia and the revival of La Resalana in next week's show. Our gratitude to David Fernandez and Dr. Hope Kitts. Please join us next week for the second episode in this series. Where We Meet comes from Taos Center for the Arts in Taos, New Mexico, and is supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Producers include Colette LaBeouf, Chelsea Reedy, Alice Morion, Ariana Cubillos-Fogler, and Joshua Aragon. Research and writing by Jacqueline Paul. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. On Where We Meet, we share conversations from New Mexico and beyond, Thanks for listening. Be well.